0: worthy, honorable, and perfectly self-enlightened, was as Buddha, consummated in knowledge and behavior.
1: Hello to you, friends. This is Dhamma on Air number 126 on money, uh, family, wives, mobile phones, and boredom, and you are
0: indeed Welcome here, in this young, green, Danish forest. Welcome. Hello to you, friends. This is Dhamma on Air. But first, the normal, daily, early Buddhist contemplation. The Buddha's speech on friendliness. What should the clever one Advantageously, do to attain this state called peace is this. He should be intelligent, straight, honest, humble, gentle, and never proud, contented and easy to support, not busy, careful, and silenced, in abilities and senses, cautious and modest. Neither flattering families nor be demanding, not doing even a minor trifle that other wise men might criticize. Then he should think, May all beings be joyous and safe, let every creature's mind rejoice, whatever breathing beings there are, no matter whether feeble or firm, whether none accepted, whether long, tall, big, medium, short or small, whether seen or unseen, visible or not, whether living far away or near here, whether existing or just about to come into being. Let every living being's mind be exultantly jubilant. Let no one ever kill. Or another being undo, nor ever harm anyone anywhere at all. Let no one wish even a minor bad for another, neither from provocation nor from revenge. Thus as a mother with her own life might guard her only baby child, thus should he maintain a mentality of infinite friendliness for every living being in gentle sympathy for this entire universe unlimited endless and waste as above so below and all around unimpeded without any hatred purged of all enmity whether standing walking seated or lying down while slumbering he should always maintain such awareness of gentle and benevolent kindness this very mentality is the divine dwelling here they say he that do not traffic with many speculative views perfected in seeing what is right and wrong purged of lust for sense pleasures he will surely not come back here to any womb. And the canonical source for this Buddhist speech on friendliness is the minor readings and the illustrator, the Kutaka Bhatta.
1: Thank you. Hello to you, friends. This is Dhamma Ampnaia on number 126 recorded in the Værhøi forest on the Western Sealand in Denmark, a windy, uh, chilly day in May 2019. Uh, I recorded today because they have uh, the weather forecast says that it's going to be frost and snow here in May, uh, so better get it done today. There are three questions as usual, but first the normal intro. Namo, Tasso, Bhagavatto, Arhatto, Samma Sampudassa, Worthy, honorable, and perfectly self-enlightened, was the blessed Buddha indeed. The first question goes like this, question 380. What is the early Buddhist take on money, wife, rebirth, and cheating? Four questions, actually. What is the Buddhist take on money? Yeah, the Buddhist take is that this is a, a necessary evil, you can say. <laughs> uh, it's not, it has nothing uh, in itself to do with evil, but it's, uh, it's uh, the things that are connected with it that is uh, can be disadvantageous, at least, or detrimental, akusala so is it's is it detrimental or is there any man bad in being uh, rich no not if the money is earned in an honest way that you take the right price uh, for the right service or thing uh, and they are earned by your own by the sweat of your own brow and not by utilizing uh, other people or uh, by any dishonest means like theft or fraud so if you earn them uh, by yourself in an honest way, then it is just uh, basically okay. What does it enable you? It enables you to first of all give away, and we say typically 20% in Buddhist. So 20% to to uh, to others. That is to say, your family, those who are worthy of it, those who need it. Uh, 20% you invest in your own business. 20% you use for your daily needs. 20%. Uh, you invest in, uh, in your house and in your household, uh, your f- own family, and then the 20% you put in the bank for better times. Uh, so this is kind of like Buddhist economy. So you can say, but hoarding them up in it for their own sake, that is where it becomes disadvantageous. There's a story about a young monk that is he's become an, uh, an uh, anagami, and then uh, he comes from a very rich family, and he also had a lot of beautiful wives. And so he's invited home to his family, and he asked for permission from the Buddha to go. And since he's an Anagami, uh, then he has no sense desire left, no Kamachanda left, raga. So uh, the Buddha said, you can go, you're ready to go back to your home. And there first, uh, the, his former wives, he has several of them, they, they dress up in their most beautiful clothes and then they present themselves in for him and then he says ah sisters and then they know just by this that he's calling them sisters Uh, then they are kind of like uh, excited or agitated by that and feel sadness because he's apparently not tempted by their physical beauty then his mother and father stack up all the gold on a big heap on the floor in front of him all the family gold they take out of the treasuries and then he said uh, to them uh, he says to them Ah, mother and father, uh, you can go and dump this in the river, because it will cause you a lot of sorrow. And then he asks if there's any food to be given in this house uh, to the monks. And and then his father and mother serve him food, and then he goes back to the... uh, He speaks some uh, dana, some dhamma, and then he goes back to the monastery. So it just demonstrates that he he could not be tempted by physical beauty, nor could he be tempted by... uh, exorbitant richness so they could not get him out of the robe and back into the family business and this is just shows the detrimental side of it let's say you have a lot of money a lot of richness and a lot of uh, material possessions then it's very difficult to go forth it's very difficult to concentrate on the path uh, because you have this all this you have to to maintain this and, and keep track of it so it tends to lead away from some from, from from Nibbana and towards Samsara, if Nibbana is this way, out in the open, towards lasting happiness, then money and material possessions in general will drag one back into Samsara because one becomes disengaged or engaged and involved with this uh, money business. Whether it's money in the bank or its investments or its housing or whatever it is, then it will keep one in Samsara. So it's a shackle on your feet if you cling to them. And it's very difficult not to cling to money, because money basically can be exchanged into whatever kind of pleasure, whatever kind of desired object that you want. One good way of looking at it it is to say, ah, can this money, can this save me from birth, aging, sickness and death? No, they cannot. Can they save me from, from suffering? No, they cannot. Rich people, they also get old. They also get cancer. They also lose their family members. They also feel sorrow. They also become old and decrepit. So they cannot, they cannot. It looks like, ah, since you can buy everything, then you can also buy happiness. No, you cannot buy happiness. You cannot buy love. You cannot buy understanding. You cannot buy Nirvana. You cannot buy freedom from suffering. You cannot buy freedom from sickness, aging, and death. You cannot buy for money. Not possible. So, so on the practical level, uh, the Buddhists would say Aye, something that you can u- utilize. You can utilize also to promoting the path. Uh, this camera is uh, bought with some uh, money that has been given to a foundation that has supports me and therefore this Dhamma can be spread through this camera, uh, which is fairly expensive actually. So uh, they can be utilized in a good way. And that's the way to look at it, to utilize it in a good way to something, to something that uh, has lasting value. And this is, the uh, Dhamma is one example of them. Uh, you can also utilize them in other, in, in reasonable ways, uh, but one can also slander them away. Another one, another d- danger is of course, one keep holding them up and uh, uh, place investments and so on, and then uh, die very rich, but have not having done much good. And this then will be inflicted in one's future rebirth. Uh, so, the ideal case is that one's bank account and all one's se- uh, material possessions, they're given away before one attains death. So they are converted, they, your, one's material possessions could go into zero, and then one's karmic bank account should go be maximized by this giving them away or investing them in something that has benefit for other beings at oneself. This is the ideal case. This should happen. not in. At the moment of death, but then in front of the, in front of death, some some months or years before, uh, it doesn't count if uh, one says one doesn't give them away, but uh, one's family gets them, because this is basically the government uh, or the law that they distribute them. That's not giving it away. So one should give it away actively, deliberately before death, uh, making a a. As many Americans do nowadays, very rich Americans, they say they they give a pledge to, at the moment of death give half their uh, richness away, or more than that, eighty percent. Bill Gates have done that, for example. So this means that others will benefit from it, not only his own family members. And this is very, very uh, advantageous. I will say uh, it will be even better to give them away before death and participate in the giving oneself. Uh, so this is the ideal case. Uh, where to best place them there where one feels joy of giving. Where one feels joy of giving. Where one is where one is needed most. And where those who get it are worthy of it. And those who get it, they invest it in getting, for example, the dhamma out. But investing in a school will also do good. Or in a hospital. Something like that. Something that has general benefit for others. The highest benefit, I still have to say, is connected with with the Dhamma. Why so? Because if one give it, for example, to a forest monk or to make a forest monastery, then uh, uh, one actually gives it so that the way to deathlessness, to nirvana, can be given to somebody else. And the way to deathlessness is the highest you can give away, because this cannot be bought by money, and everybody wishes it, basically because it's the end of suffering. So that's the highest purpose you can place your investment in. It's not Tesla or Google. <laughs> it's a Dhamma that is the highest purpose. And it's the best investment seen on in the long run. Uh, again, back to that's not, nothing odious or bad or detrimental in being very rich if one has earned one's money in an honest way. And even if one has inherited. Uh, if one has cheated, or stolen, or committed fraud, and thereby get this on unrighteous means, then there is a problem. Basically, this co- counts as theft then. Next question. How does early Buddhism look as wife, wife? Uh, we can also say husbands, uh, and children, and so on. Yes, again, it's the same thing. Uh, it's something that can be, can benefit you on the path, but it can also be an obstruction. Uh, if one is very much in love with one's wife, then one cannot go forth and one cannot approach Nirvana unless she or he, uh, one's spouse, also is a Buddhist. And it's eventually something that will, if one is very much used to their company and uh, association with them, then will keep one back in Samsara. One will come back to Samsara and look for the same wife, the same, and the same children also in many cases. So it's something that keeps one stuck in Samsara and thereby abrogates the path to Nirvana. That said, uh, it can also, on the other hand, be used to uh, be a companion that travels along towards Nibbana by being a family that, that decides or is uh, traditionally Buddhist and then uh, supports uh, good Buddhist purposes on the long run. So there it can be, uh, it can, again, it can be used both ways. And it depends upon these circumstances. Uh, usually, it is so. That there's many cases in the in the Buddhist texts about only one spouse is, is Buddhist, that the other one is not Buddhist. And then this places ambiguity of whether the being together with the spouses advantageous or disadvantageous, uh, kusala or akusala, wholesome or unwholesome on the long run. On the long run. Um, so, depends much depends upon the circumstances. Uh, however, having a spouse, having a partner, having association to other beings, one should know that eventually one will have to depart. So as the Buddha said, all meetings ends in departure. So it ends in separation. And so uh, if one is falling in love down here, I have affection here, then when it separates then one feels sorrow. So this uh, this engagement, involvement in other beings. Either in the romantic way or uh, in a habitual, uh, social way, this spells for future sorrow because one will uh, tend to be separated anyway, whether one likes it or not. If not before, then at death. What is the Buddhist take on on rebirth? Yeah, rebirth is an essential uh, doctrine and fact that one has to know. And this one has to kind of like take uh, into consideration also live, when living lived life. Starting to consider rebirth at the moment of death is too late. Uh, so one has to in, incorporate it in this life. And so one is living a rebirth now, and one is using up karma one has planted in the in the former times. So the one should replenish this this karma, fill up the karma, so one can have a good rebirth in the next life to approach the nibbana and approach the Dhamma even more. So uh, rebirth is something that one should, should consider every day, consider every day, like also considering death, and then say, ah, where, where, where may I go, where, may I, where did I come from, uh, where am I now? It's not something that one needs to speculate a lot about, uh, but it's something that just can kind of like roll over the mind roll over into the mind that one is living now in this world. There's another world. One has come from other worlds also. One has been here many times before. As the Buddha said to his monks, you see this mountain over there? Yes, venerable Sir, they say. Ah, you have made a mountain of bones that is bigger than this mountain, uh, just in this universal cycle, in this eon, in this kalpa. What is it that you want? You want to make a mountain of bones more? Is that happiness, one can ask oneself, to make mountains of bones, fill up the cemeteries? No, absolutely not. A Brahmin came and asked the Buddha that he, he wants him to point out a place in, on Earth, planet Earth, where nobody has been buried ever. And then the Buddha, he scanned around with his all-seeing eye, uh, which can also scan back and forth in time. And then he saw, he said, I cannot find any place where there has not been digged down people. Uh, many times so there's no, no place where there's not been digged down people so this whole is one big burial ground this is one another factor of looking at this birth aging sickness and death this samsara this cycle this vatta, this round of kiresas, of mental defilement not of a me of an ego of an i that goes around and round and round and round and round again and again and again being partially blinded not knowing the four noble truths not seeing one's former rebirth and what's seeing one's next rebirth. One keep going on. Thinking it's new every time. Because of forgetfulness and lack of mindfulness. This should not be done. And therefore one should know, ah, uh, rebirth is something, is around, is a troublesome thing. Because one will keep coming back to this aging sickness and death. This is what rebirth is about, aging sickness and death and not much else. Yes, while you're intoxicated with youth, uh, you use all kinds of stuff and have all kinds of fun and so on. Yes, there is some places to be found there. I don't deny, but nevertheless, the story still ends the same way. It's like a spy fly in a bottle. There's an opening up in the top, but it cannot find out. This Nirvana Only the Dhamma can lead you out of this bottle of samsara. And if you, look, it stayed down in the bottle because there's a little bit of sugar water, sweet things, sweet sensations, something sweet that you can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think that's down on the bottom of soda, So it keeps to the bottom. And if one looks a little bit next day on the same bottle, then the spy fly lies with the legs upwards and is mixed into this uh, Coca-Cola or whatever it is on the bottom of the bottle. So has been killed by the sweetness, sticky sweetness itself, the sweetness of life. That there is these tantalizing forests, there is this tantalizing sex, drugs, and rock and roll that one keeps clutching onto and think, ah, oh, this can provide me uh, everlasting happiness. But this is not the case. On the contrary, one keeps buzzing around in samsara. like. A fly in a spy bo- uh, a spy fly in a bottle. What is the Buddhist take on cheating? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, cheating should not be done. Uh, of course, not. This is kamisu Michachara, uh, sexual abuse. So. Uh, Cheating will say one have sex with somebody else's partner or one have a partner oneself and then one have have promised oneself to this partner Whether in a marriage or marriage-like state, then one have sex with somebody else and then one knows this uh, Partner the other's partner's partner will become very sorrowful and oneself becomes very sorrowful and one's own partner will also become very sorrowful Still one does it because it's this temptation of uh, sexual stimulation and a short moment of pleasure that usually doesn't last more than uh, half an hour. And then uh, one can have regrets and remorse and regrets for months and for years over these uh, singular events. Uh, So this is something that one should uh, just say, ah, no, this is a a wrong way. It's a tempting way, but it's also a wrong way. And it costs more than uh, you gain. Yes, there's some small pleasure, there's half an hour pleasure to be gained, but then compared to these months or years of remorse and regret towards your own partner and also towards having betrayed somebody else's, this clearly outweighs the small pleasure gained. So this one should abrogate. Uh, One way of abrogating is looking, I say, okay, I'm a really slave of something that I can hear, hear, see, taste and touch. And this mental state of orgasm is really so much slave of it that I cannot uh, say no to it. And thereby come around this sharp corner of uh, long-lasting sorrow that also can be so, so sorrowful that it determines the destination if it's remembered at the moment of death cannot really, not that, this can bring me to hell, it can bring to animal rebirth, to the fearful states, apaya, this, surely this sexual, sensual abuse can do me. So seeing this one sh- should stay away from it, To so stay away from it. Uh, one story I heard was a couple, young couple that uh, engaged in these swinger clubs where this is more or less agreed, where one should swap partners and so on. And then uh, the husband of uh, this particular wife so a married couple. Uh, she, he fell in love with one from the Swinger Club. And he was working together with his wife. They'd done for many years in a hair shop that was cutting hairs. And then he took together with his lover into the hair shop. So the wife has to go together with the with the new lover from the Swinger Club. And eventually she felt so much she could not get out of it because uh, economics, she was dependent upon the husband and, and the hair shop. So she had to stand by and look at at these two uh, new lovers that was got because of of a mutual agreement that she did uh, deliberately together with her husband to get this uh, new kinky sex she eventually killed herself because of this sorrow because she had to be in this hair shop every day together with her rival uh, a younger lady and this made her felt very big sorrow so you can say it started very sweet It started very sweet as something that was very tantalizing, but it ended up with being a a humongous amount of sadness, uh, and eventually a suicide. So, this one can see, and then immediately, ah, it's the wrong path, it's the wrong path. And I think everybody knows it in advance, because uh, everybody has been down this lane before uh, tons of times in samsara. And one knows it. If one listens to one's own intuition and say, ah, is this right or wrong, then one can immediately feel it's wrong. But one is still tempted by the pleasure. And therefore this pleasure has uh, two sides, it can be very sweet, yes, but it can also lead one into evil states. Because one is addicted to it and cannot say no. One has no control, self-control, over what this body and mind does when it's faced uh, with high pleasure new pleasure, tantalizing pleasure. Uh, So uh, this is something that one should know. This is something that one should know. Everything has a price, and the price for any kind of pleasure is higher than one should think because of this addiction. But in the case of where one hurts others, as in cheating, both hurts one's own partner and another's partner, then it's much higher than one immediately should think. And it's not worth the pleasure that you get. Far from it. It's not even one one thousandth or one millionth of it. So it's dangerous. Dangerous. Next question: 381. Is a Biko Bikuni allowed to use books, smartphones in a temple community? Yeah, books definitely so. Uh, because number books is what we go. There's 56 books in the Tipitaka, in the Buddhist Bible, uh, so to speak. So it's two meter of text. So these are of course not only allowed but prescribed to use, which is the text of the Buddha. As you can see here, there's the Dika Nikaya, the Majjhima Nikaya, the Samyutta Nikaya, and the Anguttara Nikaya, and a lot of other texts, uh, counting up to something like 8,000 pages, 10,000 pages, depending on on the edition. So it's a humongous amount of texts that one should read. Uh, I recommend reading the five Nikayas of the Sutta Pitaka uh, that I just mentioned the Long Collection, Diganikaya, the Middle Collection, Majima Nikaya, the Numerical Collection, uh, the anguttara Nikaya and the connected or collected Samyutanikaya texts of the Buddha and then the Kutaka Nikaya the, the text the collection of small texts also which is actually fairly many. Uh, among them, the Jataka's the birth stories, which is three volumes uh, of the former birth of the Buddha, uh, where we have fo- now together 547 left. But also various poems uh, and all kinds of texts. Read this before uh, the end of one's life. That's a good thing. So uh, books definitely allowed. What about phones and computers? The computers? And phones. There was there's no not any laws that prohibit it or spoke about it because the Buddha, of course, wasn't present at the Buddha's time, so he didn't place any laws about it. But it's something that can be used in two ways. Also, like money uh, and association with other beings can be used in an advantageous way with the purpose of leading others to Dhamma and thereby showing them the noble eightfold way. Uh, and this, in the for example, this camera and the laptop i used to edit this video on and this is used for this purpose when it used for this purpose then it's allowable if it's used to see uh, uh, entertainment film on or uh, or news uh, or whatever uh, that has nothing to do with the damper then it's disadvantageous and then we will say it's not allowable but it's strictly speaking neither phones nor uh, computers are uh, are either allowed or prohibited in the by the Buddha because there was no he didn't put any laws about it because they were not present at his time, of course. But again, it depends upon how you use it. If you use it for the right purpose, then I would say it's allowable. by proxy. Because they they are something that promotes the Dhamma, promotes the setting free, promotes the lasting happiness. promotes a way to nirvana, not only for oneself, but for many other beings. It also goes if you have to call somebody, uh, a layperson, to come uh, with dāna tomorrow, or you should call somebody to get some, something arranged with papers with the government, or invite somebody or something. There's a lot of practical purpose, and thereby phones are very practical. But they can also be obsessive if you have to check the, your Facebook account a uh, messenger all the time and it says bling, 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 bling every time you get a message. Huh? This is uh, also the case. So again, they have two sides. Something that is uh, advantageous, kusala or wholesome. Something that is akusala, detrimental or unwholesome. And it's up to you to be disciplined enough in each moment. And this is by no means easy to use them in the right way, to use them to set free, to use them to propagate the Dhamma, and not in an unwise fashion. So uh, when communicating with spiritual friends, as we do in this case, uh, then uh, I would say that uh, computers and uh, internet and... Uh, cameras and software and so on is not only allowable, it is advantageous, it is to be recommended because it obviously uh, is used in a purpose that is noble and it's sets beings free. So, definitely good. The last question How to deal with intense boredom is question 382. How to deal with intense boredom? which is discussed combined with mental suffocation, yes, uh, uh, boredom actually is uh, equanimity, upekka, that one is not aware of. So there's neither gladness nor sadness, there's neither pleasure nor pain, it's a neutral feeling, but if not uh, aware of it, then it falls into boredom. However, if there's mindfulness, awareness, sati, regarding this neutral state of neither sadness nor gladness neither pain nor pleasure, then it's felt as peace. So one can convert boredom to peace, if one is, becomes aware of it. Uh, when it's felt as boredom, then I think one is, uh, first of all, not aware of this neutral feeling, and secondly, there's craving, usually sensual craving, craving to see something new, to hear something new, to taste something new, and thereby get this sense, sense stimulation to touch something new, or have a new mental state. Creating for entertainment, for example, which becomes more and more and more and more explosive in the entertainment world, because everybody is doped uh, and saturated with drama, uh, that is uh, in the, uh, <laughs> in the, uh, to the extreme degree, huh? If you t- think about, for example, Hollywood and all these uh, hero movies, uh, how, how much the, the action drama has to be action has to be explosions how much the porn industry has to be porn has to be so uh, so explosive in order to stimulate people still and same thing uh, uh, also with food and with hotels and uh, all kinds of stuff that it has uh, reached extreme levels extreme levels it just show this. Uh, this catch-22 of sense stimulation that is like a pit that you put down something. You try to satisfy uh, this sense craving by giving some object that the sense craving wants, something to see, for example, by seeing a film or a, a piece of art or uh, a porn or whatever. But the more you feed it, the deeper the hole becomes. So it's like you, when you put something down in this hole, uh, by by a paradoxical way, because of adaptation. Uh, the hole becomes deeper and deeper. Doesn't become it's because doesn't become filled up. So you never reach a a point where they are fully satisfied. Never, never, ever. On the contrary, the more you fill in, the more you feed the the mind this sense stimulation, the more it becomes used to. And thereby adapts to this, which then becomes boredom. So uh, you have to then. Uh, get a new sex, a sexual object, or a new uh, film, or a new kind of food, uh, and have to have it in a larger amount, or more refined, to get the same level of satisfaction. But still, if you get the same level of satisfaction, or even higher satisfaction, still it will fade off. Then you have to feed the animal again, and again, and again, and again. This is running in circles. Okay. And while doing this, plugging these flowers, <laughs> many are around me here, white flowers of sense pleasure, then the Buddha say, I want to swept over by this dukkha that comes from behind, like a wave. One is swept over by birth, aging, sickness and death. Swept over. Like the flood a fleeting a sleeping village. Huh? The village sleeps but then suddenly comes the big tsunami waves. Uh, and then it you never find the village again, because it's basically drowned in mud, it's gone, it's history. Uh, So that's the case. When uh, urging for this sensuous pleasure, then one can uh, use a good thing, uh, which is, which is Buddhist notice about right speech. And he said there's ten advantageous objects, and then there's something that is disadvantageous objects of speech, and thereby also thought, thereby also activity. The ten advantageous subjects uh, of speech, and thereby also thought, is the modesty of having few wants, the bliss of contentment, Contentment. the the joy of seclusion, being secluded from one's defilement, being physically secluded from from, uh, engagement, involvement in samsara, the ease of disentanglement, the energy of enthusiasm, the advantage of morality, of purity, of moral behavior, the calm of concentration, meditative concentration, the insight of understanding, the freedom of release, and the direct knowledge and vision of release. So this is fairly high points of Dhamma that one can return to again and again,
0: and again, and again.
1: And this is something completely else, something completely otherwise. It's something else than six drugs, and rock and roll that makes the pit even deeper. It's something else. It's something that leads towards Nibbana, leads towards absolute peace, complete freedom, and the highest happiness. Leading towards that, one cuts out this samsaric buzzing around, one cuts it out. The disadvantageous subjects uh, or bestial conversation and thinking is conversation about kings, robbers, ministers, states, armies, alarms, battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands, scents, that is cosmetics, relatives, vehicles, cars, villages, towns, cities, the countryside, women and heroes, (laughs) the gossip of the street and the will, the tales of the dead, the tales of diversity, the creation of the world and of the sea, and whether things exist or not. So all kinds of uh, hypothetical, philosophical subjects one can uh, endlessly think about. This is basically going in circles. One can keep coming back to this, advantageous things. Here in Denmark, and I think everywhere else also, uh, we have some magazines which are full of this stuff. There's some for ladies and some for men, uh, some for young, and some for a little older, and they are full of uh, all kinds of stuff regarding this issue. Because of the advertisement industry is pumping out uh, and knocking your door in an unprecedented way. So, uh, some, somebody says that we are bombarded with five times more information than we were uh, hundred years ago. And it's very, very difficult to sort out what is important and what is not important. That's where the Dhamma comes in. Cut out everything else, basically. Then go back to nature and the Dhamma. That's enough. More than enough to be happy. More than enough to be free. More than enough to find back to the right path. The Noble Eightfold Way. And what is Noble Eightfold Way? Yeah, the Noble Eightfold Way is right view, samaditti, right motivation, sama Sankappa, right speech, samavaja, right action, sama Kamanta, right livelihood, samajivo, right effort, Sammavadyama, right awareness or mindfulness, sammasati and right concentration, Sama Samadhi. Culminating for the Arahat in right release and right knowledge and vision of release. That's the way. That's the way. Thank you for your advantageous attention, your clever consideration, and your kind contribution. Uh, living here in Denmark is very expensive, so uh, you're welcome to contribute this dhamma sharing uh, that reach out to something like 100,000 uh, every day, and is pumping out both from SoundCloud, which you can find on net the website, and also on YouTube and various other channels. So thank you for your contribution. Thereby also thanks to all uh, diacas all supporters, uh, especially those who support every month, the regular donors, uh, because there's a pattern of a small band of people who have supported this dhamma sharing for a number of years. Uh, and thereby also paid this camera and paid this this computer and so on. So, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Without that support from the laity uh, to the monastic Sangha, then the Dhamma could not thrive. So, it's a symbiotic relationship between the monastic Sangha, the monks and the nuns, that gains freedom to seek the Dhamma and thereby also promote it, conserve it, preserve it, and then the lay people that gains the merit the pin, and thereby the future, the karma, the good karma, the karmic elevation, uh, by sharing their material gains, which they have earned in their own, the sweat of their own brow, in a righteous way. So thank you for that. And may you indeed have a nice and noble day. Namu. Tasso Bagavato Arahatto Sama Worthy Honorable and Perfectly Self-enlightened was the bliss. Thank you for today and may you have a nice and noble day. While being here in Denmark you can see it's spring. Uh, when I came here it was fairly cold, three degrees celsius and that there has been snow this winter also uh, a thought came to my mind that it has been a long-standing wish for me to bring the dhamma early buddhism back here to denmark who gave me a free education in as a medical doctor there's a, a both a need uh, for people who are fairly stressed and there's also an interest in buddhism in general and in eastern philosophy and yoga uh, in particular. However, there's almost no knowledge whatsoever about what the historical Buddha Gautama actually said 2,500 years ago and the the reason for that is so there is uh, three monasteries here in in Denmark and also the same situation goes for all of Europe actually there's very very few monasteries and very very few monks there uh, to propagate the Dhamma to share the Dhamma to the local uh, residents. And those are, uh, all these three that are in Denmark, they are of Asian origin. This means that uh, it's uh, usually Thai. Uh, the Thai community is that has has a, a monastery, a small monastery, with some monks. But these monks are Thai monks. They speak only Thai language. So they can uh, not easily communicate with the Danish people. Can't do in English. Uh, but this severely hampers the effort to get the Dhamma uh, out into society uh, so uh, there's fairly limited dharma sharing from uh, the monasteries here the three monasteries in, in the entire Denmark five million population and the same goes for for all of Europe actually so if one should seriously uh, get the dharma to root in the western world then there's a need for western monks who speaks the local language as a mother tongue to stay there over a prolonged period and uh, to share Dhamma with the local people then then, then will trickle out in society little by little through newspapers, uh, television and so on internet meditation courses Buddhist coaching uh, uh, regular uh, Dhamma meetings and uh, various other Dhamma activities this can only be done if one lives as a a local monk speaking the local language in the community that uh, is supposed to be benefiting from the dhamma so uh, in this regard uh, i had an idea about a make either it could be a small uh, hermitage like the one you see here a small building uh, in the forest a forest hermitage here in denmark or it could be a forest monastery for two or three monks or it could be a a full-fledged meditation center. As you see, there's a building here that uh, two years ago was shown to me to be allocated to this purpose, but who needed, which needed a roof, a major project. So uh, what I'm suggesting is kind of like a a Dhamma project called Seeding the Dhamma in Denmark. And uh, if anybody is seriously interested in, in helping, assisting this project grow So the dhamma is seeded first in Denmark and then maybe in Scandinavia and and then spread out little by little, trickling out to Europe. Uh, Then uh, I would be very helpful, uh, very gratitude and very thankful for any assistance uh, uh, you can provide. However, it is not impossible uh, to get these places. Uh, The woodpecker is talking with here. The woodpecker agrees, certainly so. Nevertheless, uh, if anybody is interested in, in this Seating the Dhamma in Denmark project, in assisting this on the long term, uh, starting with making a Buddhist hermitage like this, uh, with a small kitchen and a small bathroom, uh, and isolation and heating, uh, then uh, please contact me uh, on my email, samahita at gmail.com b h a n t dot s a m a h a t a at gmail regarding this seating the dammer in Denmark project. Thank you for your attention. May many, many beings become thus
0: happy thereby. Namo. Thasso, Bhagavatto,
1: Arhatto, Sama
0: Worthy, Honorable, and Perfectly, Perfectly Self-enlightened was Buddha Indeed. Thank you. You heard Bhikkhu Sammaitan from the Cypress Hermitage on the Knuckles Mountain Bambarella, Central Hill Country Sri Lanka Please subscribe to the Google group Buddha Direct and visit the website whatbuddhaset.net May all beings become thus happy thereby thank you Namu, casso, bhagavato, arahato, samma worthy, honourable, and perfectly self-enlightened, was the Blessed Buddha. As the next Buddha, the noble, arya, Ajitta Mucceya, will say. You can come as you like, but you pay as you go. Thank you for your contribution, and have a nice day.